This week from Siberia, through Alaska, and then what? The journey of the first people to crack America. I mean, I'm sure that uh, these hunter-gatherers were also explorers and curious about, you know, what would be on the other side of these ice caps. And are we in danger of running out of bandwidth? You know, if you're looking at 30 and 40 percent, you know, growth rates and uh, demand that we've already seen, you know, it's only a few years, even at those modest uh, utilization rates, that, that gets used up. Plus the material that does a conductive double act. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 11th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. A lot has changed in Northern America compared with 15,000 years ago. At that time, the whole planet was emerging from the last ice age. Gargantuan glaciers covered much of Canada and the States. Brave early humans had managed to trek from Siberia to Alaska over a land bridge. But then they were stuck there until the glaciers melted. Eventually the ice began to recede and a corridor opened up, allowing them to finally head south. So goes the theory. The discovery of archaeological sites older than the ice-free corridor, but still south of it, raised the possibility of an earlier coastal route. But the ice-free corridor has still been touted as the major highway into the Americas. To determine when humans could have travelled through this corridor, a team led by S.K. Willislev at the University of Copenhagen recreated the habitat of the ice-free corridor by sequencing ancient plant and animal DNA buried beneath two lakes. They wanted to see if anything could have lived there and supported humans as they journeyed through it. Were there plants and game to eat? Was there firewood? The region did get green, Willislev tells nature reporter Ewan Calloway, but it didn't happen quickly. With some more background, here's Esky. During the Pleistocene times, uh, you know, most of North North America were actually covered by two uh, great ice caps. And it was kind of blocking uh, the way for any movements of humans or animals between Alaska and the lower 48 states uh, and uh, South America. At some point, presumably around 13,000 years ago, the two ice caps would basically start melting back and that formed a corridor which was running from, you can say, uh, Yukon uh, through, uh, uh, through Alberta and uh, all the way into northern Montana, really. In most textbooks uh, in, in, on early peopling of the Americas, that's where people suggest that humans were moving from Siberia into Alaska and further down south. But I understand that there have been doubts over the years about whether the, the very first Americans arrived through this ice-free corridor. Why doubt this, this path of colonization? For a long time, the oldest archaeology that people could find in, in the lower 48 states and South America it was dating only to around 13,000. And the timing fits with the opening of the corridor, the physical opening of the corridor. But then, uh, you know, sites started appearing that uh, seems to be older, a few thousand years older than the physical opening of the corridor. I mean, the alternative explanation that people have come up with is that, that uh, humans could have moved along the west coast of uh, uh, North America. So these early sites were probably settled by the coast, but people thought that maybe a thousand or so years later, the main route into the Americas was through this ice-free corridor. How did your team determine when humans could have used this path? We decided to try to concentrate our efforts of reconstructing the succession, if you want, the biological succession 
of the ice free corridor focusing on the last areas being exposed uh, for traveling. And uh, because, you know, those are kind of the bottleneck areas. I mean, if people can't pass those or animals can't pass those, well, they can't move uh, north south or south north. And uh, we did that by going to lakes that was also existing uh, as part of these bottleneck areas uh, in the past. And uh, then we did that in the wintertime, standing on the ice and then drilling a cores uh, of the sediments of those lakes. Then the next step was, of course, to reconstruct, if you want, the ecosystem or the biology of this area. We screened the cores for pollen grains and we basically retrieve DNA directly from the sediment. So this is for the plants, uh, you know, this DNA is likely coming from rootlets and flowers and leaves and stuff. And for the animals, it seems to come from feces and urine. So, so paint a picture for me of this ice-free corridor and the, and the timing of its, of its uh, habitation. What, what, what was it like? Yeah, so in the beginning, you can say around when the corridor opens around 13,000 years ago, we don't find really any evidence of biological activity in there. But a few hundred years after its opening up, around 12,600 years ago, then we start seeing uh, evidence of a steppe community going in there with artemisia and grasses and stuff, but no trees. And very soon after that, you start seeing the animals, mammals in, in the form of woolly mammoth and bison, for example, which we also know are living in this type of environment. It's very unlikely, based on our results, that humans could have used this corridor before 12,600 years. They must have taken another route into the lower 48 states. I think the most likely scenario is that people were traveling along the west coast of North America, either through land, but alternatively as kind of a marine or boat-faring group of people. But I think one very obvious thing to do now would be to go uh, into the West Coast areas. I mean, most of that landmass that could have been sustaining these early people is underneath seawater today, but there's still islands that was part of that land bridge. And there one could go and try to get sediment samples in the same way as we have done with the interior ice-free corridor. And actually, this sort of work is already happening. Next year, I believe, researchers are going to start collecting cores from the ocean floor uh, just off the west coast of, of, of the U.S. in search of these, this coastal migration route. But Eski, as, as a final thought, when you think beyond these sediment cores about the journeys involved here, how, how do you think about these people? How do you imagine them? I think that, uh, you know, you shouldn't underestimate the curiosity of people, just like people today are, you know, trying to reach the top of Mount Everest or the South Pole, etc. I mean, I'm sure that uh, these hunter-gatherers were also explorers and curious about, you know, what would be on the other side of these ice caps. That was Eski Willislev at the University of Copenhagen. For more on his paper and a News and Views article, head over to nature.com nature. Coming up later in the show, the gene editing technique that's newer than CRISPR, keep up. Plus, we've got even more sediment core revelations and some posh spiders in the research highlights. First, though, Noah Baker goes in search of better bandwidth. Do you remember this sound? (laughs) 
it makes me cringe thinking of slow internet crashing websites, watching a download bar creep across a flickering screen. Luckily, a lot has changed in the past few decades. As web-enabled tech develops at a rapid rate, so too has our ability to keep it connected. For many, it's out with clunky dial-up modems and in with superfast broadband, data rocketing through high-tech fibre-optic cables at light speed. But every technology has its limits. There's a finite amount of information that, say, any cable can carry every second, and that's called bandwidth. As our collective craving for connectivity increases, so too must bandwidth. But that's not necessarily simple. So how do we get around the bandwidth problem? I spoke to Eric Kreifeld from the telecommunications research firm Telegeography to find out more. To start off with, Eric and I imagined a Microsoft update file, making its way from Microsoft HQ all the way to a user's computer. What's likely to happen is that Microsoft will you know, create the update and then distribute that update to its various data centers around the world. Trick number one. By storing the update in multiple places, Microsoft both takes it closer to users, making it quicker to access, and also spreads the load, preventing the bandwidth of cables around Microsoft HQ getting clogged up every time a new update is released. This means that when I download an update from my studio here in London... You're probably going to access it from a data center in, in London or thereabouts. And if I access it, I'm going to get it from a data center here in suburban Washington, D.C., probably near Ashburn, Virginia. So where are these data centres? One might assume that they're evenly spread around the world, but no. They are primarily in the most mature markets, uh, you know, the United States, with North America, Europe, where most of them are. Uh, you know, they're kind of on this east-west lateral line around the world, you know, uh, maybe some in India. And then you get north, north and south, there are fewer you know, in South America and Africa. That means that there are many places around the world without nearby data centres. For example, the, the, the Gulf region and the Middle East, I think approximately 85% of their international traffic is still exchanged in Europe. And that can lead to a loss in performance. Even though there may be a high demand for internet services, when it comes to building data centres, there are other factors to take into account. There's a lot of different criteria that you'll look at to optimise this decision to make a data centre that you want. You want the data centre to be close to uh, uh, network connectivity. You want the power to be cheap. You want the tax regime to be favourable. You want it to be physically close to large population. And the list goes on. Now, building new data centres is only one technique being used to help deal with bandwidth problems. Another solution could be to improve the technology, build more efficient cables or modify wireless technology. And this research is being done. But Eric says that new technology may not be the solution, perhaps because the real problems are financial. I think one of the big challenges is the business case for keeping up with the demand for capacity. It's you know, costly and capital intensive to uh, you know, run a network and, and keep people connected to it. Eric says the technology we have is actually pretty good. It's just expensive and someone has to pay for it. That responsibility is often falling to private companies. You know, we've seen in the core network that the companies that have the greatest need for bandwidth to operate their businesses uh, have indeed stepped in to supply that uh, capacity. You know, years ago, cable systems that would be um, built would be have names associated with them like you know AT&T and British Telecom, and they're still involved. But now, the the largest uh, 
consumers of bandwidth are you know Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, and uh, their ilk, and the, the, those are the ones that are most primarily involved in these cable systems. Now, that's a little bit like Toyota building new roads so that their customers have somewhere to drive. And that demonstrates just how vital bandwidth is to the business models of these companies. Eric thinks that even with the expense, they'll keep paying, but the politics of who pays for what is still to be decided. If there's value in the application, then you know, the parties involved in that will you know, step in to, to, to realise it. But uh, it's, it's not a uh, you know, foregone conclusion on precisely how that, uh, how that can happen. That was Eric Kreifeld from Telecom's research firm Telegeography. There's a feature all about the bandwidth crisis in the magazine this week. Check it out at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up, a multitasking material that could help make batteries better. But now it's time for the research highlights with Corrie Locke in Boston. Most woolly mammoths died off between 14,000 and 10,000 years ago. But one group managed to hang on for longer. This population lived on St. Paul Island off the coast of Alaska. Now researchers say that the giant animals finally went extinct around 6,000 years ago. The researchers studied mammoth fossils, along with ancient DNA and other material found in sediment that was taken from the bottom of a lake on St. Paul Island. They could not find any signs of human activity on the island around that time, so hunting probably didn't contribute to the animal's demise. Instead, the scientists say that climate change was to blame. Sea levels were rising, causing the island to shrink, and a drier climate was turning the lake into a salty puddle. The study was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Spiders, millipedes, ants, all can be found lurking somewhere inside your home. Researchers recently went looking for these little critters inside 50 homes around Raleigh, North Carolina. They found, to their surprise, that the diversity of the creatures was higher in homes that were in wealthier neighborhoods than in those in less affluent areas. High income levels could be affecting this diversity through urban planning and landscaping that maintain a wide range of plants in the neighborhood. You can find the research in the journal Biology Letters. Most of us know more or less how electricity is conducted. In conductive materials like metals, is the flow of free electrons that carry the current. But electrons aren't the only thing materials can conduct. Some solids can also conduct ions, the charged atoms that you'd normally expect to be fixed in place. Materials like this have something of a split personality. They behave physically like a solid, but conduct more like a liquid, with some of the bulky charged atoms able to move through the material. While wires conduct with electrons, batteries store and conduct their charge with ions. But what happens at their electrodes, where the wires connect to the battery? At this boundary, you need a material that can conduct with both electrons and ions at the same time. These materials exist, but as researcher Joachim Meyer explained, the ones we have aren't ideal at getting this job done. Many materials they may take up ions, but they may not be able to take up a lot of electrons. And there are other materials which may take up electrons, but they have, for example, no room for the ions to incorporate. And that's why electrode materials are quite rare. And that's why our idea was to just construct composites in a way that the material 
that might take up only the ions but not the electrons is connected and combined with the material that takes up the electrons but not the ions. And then in the composite, they can do the job. So our final goal would be like a normal battery, but the electrode is composed of a composite of a very highly conducting ion conductor and a very highly conducting electron conductor. How do you physically create it? I mean, the way of preparing it is not very exciting. We just took carbon and we took rubidium silver iodide. We melted it and then we ended up finally by going below the melting point with such a composite. So what you did seems to me as an outsider almost deceptively simple. You just took one material that can conduct electrons and another material that can conduct ions and put them together. Is this something other people have tried? And what made you think of it? Yeah, the concept is not so straightforward. But if you are able, and that is a basic here, to make materials that are very thin, maybe in the extreme layer by layer, layer of A, layer of B, layer of A, layer of B, and then you can have quite a storage. And this, in the example just treated, can also be very fast. So what does it being fast, what does that actually enable you to potentially do with this material? The material itself is not meant for any application, but it shows that the right combination of a very good ion conductor and a very good electron conductor uh, enables one to have a high storage capacity and it can be extremely fast. So what we actually would like to have is, a, for example, a material that is a very good lithium or maybe sodium ion conductor, this may be a very, very good cell, which is very fast and has, has a decent storage capacity as well. What, what would be the applications of a, of a battery like that? When you have normally a battery, there is a kind of a difficulty in a way that you either have a battery that can store a lot, but then typically the rate is not very good. Now, with such a system, we could end up with a good compromise and probably having a very quick material, which can also store a lot. So having a high energy density together with a high power density. That was Joachim Meyer from the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Research in Germany. For more on the multi-talented material recipe, head over to nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll find the paper and a news and views. Finally this week, as always, it's the News Chat, and we have Heidi Ledford joining us in the studio in London. Uh, Heidi used to work in Boston until very recently, but welcome to London, Heidi. Thanks so much, Carrie. Now, CRISPR, everyone is familiar with this who listens to the podcast, but it is so early 2016, uh, and it's all about now a new technique for editing genomes called, we think, NGAGO. Right. So this new technique is based on a different kind of system. Um, It's also taken from bacteria. Uh, but it uses a different f- kind of protein. It's called an argonaut protein. That protein may be familiar to some molecular biology nerds because it's involved in RNA interference, which is another technique that researchers have been using for a long time. So there was a publication in, in May saying that this might be uh, a really handy way to edit genomes, much in the way that CRISPR had been used. Uh, but unfortunately, in the time since then, it seems that a lot of labs have tried and failed to reproduce those results. Yes, yeah, so it was only a couple of months, but it generated quite a lot of excitement, this first paper, which came out of a lab in China at Hebei University. That's right. So, you know, 
CRISPR is it's a really handy tool, but um, boy, couldn't it be just a little bit better or a little bit easier, right? So, um, you know, researchers were very quick to jump on this technique, I think, because it had a few advantages and a few technical advantages over the classical system. And it had some promise for being a little bit easier, possibly a little bit more versatile um, in terms of, you know, the specific changes that you could make and in which genomes, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people really rushed to give it a try. And unfortunately, some of those efforts to replicate the original findings have not gone well. That's right. It's, um, there's quite a bit out there. You can see it online. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion. Um, you know, the story that we have running this week talks a little bit about um, the reaction that the, the lead investigator on the paper has experienced. He says he's getting 20 to 30 phone calls a day now uh, with people saying, your career is over. This thing is, is not working. And um, so, yes, it generated a lot of interest, and then it seems quite a bit of frustration when it when it didn't pan out for those researchers. The people that I've spoken to, and I think some of the people um, who are in the story that um, our reporter, David Siernowski, reported from, from China, uh, a lot of those people said, you know, it's too early to, to lock this away and say it's no good. Um, and certainly uh, the lead investigator, Chun Yu Han, he had some suggestions for why it may not be working for people. You know, maybe they're cells are contaminated. Maybe they just aren't, you know, being quite careful enough in how they're executing the the protocol. And I also, you know, I do also get the sense that people were looking for an easier way to do this thing. And when it didn't work right away, they just said, nope, and they moved on. The researcher himself, Chen Yu Han, who you mentioned, seems not the kind of person who would overhype this at all. I mean, from David's story, he seems extremely humble and a bit overawed. This is my favorite part of that story. I really love it because I think that, um, you know, something like this, especially where there's so much discussion on the Internet and it becomes so depersonalized. And David, you know, met with Chun Yuhan. He got, you know, a, a sense for his personality. You know, he's a very calm person. Um, it's just fascinating. He's never left China. He's 42 years old. The first time he ever got on a plane was to visit a collaborator in China in March. It just, you know, it's just these interesting personal details, I think, that really makes it a more of a human story. And I really, you know, I really appreciate that being in the in the article. I agree. And I mean, we'll just sort of wait and see how it pans out to have this storm swirling around this, <laughs> yeah, this reasonably right. reclusive man. That's right. You've looked this week at some other alternatives to CRISPR because NGAGO is not the only one, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So there have been this whole area is kind of a hot field of research, I think, just ways to improve upon what CRISPR can already do. And it was it was a nice chance for us. You know, we've written a lot about how popular CRISPR is and how much it can do. And it was a nice chance for us to kind of take a step back and say, but it can't quite do everything that researchers want. And so here's what they're doing to try to make it a little bit better. Um, so we have a story that goes through some of the alternatives that they've been coming up with, um, everything from just smaller enzymes that can better fit into viruses and can then shuttle everything into a human cell for gene therapy, for example, um, to different kinds of enzymes that work in a similar way, but instead target RNA, for example. That was um, one that was published recently that um, you know people are hopeful might be useful for studying RNA or for... Uh, coming up with therapies for RNA viruses, um, all the way to just completely different systems like NGAGO and, um, you know, others that are still in the pipeline that people have been working on for a long time and are hoping, still hoping that they can get to, can program so that they can use it uh, as a tool at, 
maybe as good or better than CRISPR. And I love the one called Lambda Red, which works only in bacteria, but sounds much more like a bar that you might find in London. Yeah, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I hadn't thought of that. Lambda Red is one, uh, George Church and a few others are a big pro- uh, proponent of that one. But, you know, you have to admit, he's he's been working on that since 2003, I think it was, trying to get that to work in other bacteria and spe- and especially in mammalian cells. So he often points to that as an example of how interesting CRISPR really is that it worked just right away in in lots of different kinds of cells. And just pulling back a little bit from the weeds, I suppose, of how these techniques actually work, if we could get new techniques to make CRISPR better or supplement it uh, with other techniques, what eventually, what are kind of the applications that people are looking what do they want to improve? I think one of the main frustrations with CRISPR is that it's very good at making deletions in genes. So um, you can snip a little bit out of a gene or maybe insert a little bit so that you can knock out its function. And that, a lot of people, when they say they're editing a genome, that's what they're doing. Um, but when it comes to making very specific changes, for example, you know, maybe correcting um, a gene that's involved in a, in a disease of some sort, it can be much more difficult, especially if you want if you want to rewrite a little bit of the sequence there um, and take it out and replace it with one of your choosing. It happens typically at a much lower efficiency, and that's I think really the main bugaboo about CRISPR that that people really want to to make that better. Thanks, Heidi. Uh, time for us to go and get a pint at Lambda Red. What you say? <laughs> Sounds great. The NG Ago stories are at nature.com/news. Read them for free and join the debate on Twitter at Nature News. That's it for this week. I'm off to stream some videos before the internet runs out. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.